So yeah, that's a, that's a fun little film about this thing called the Trinity, right? This, this uh, idea that we worship one God in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And of course, it comes from uh, the, the story of St. Patrick. Uh, Patrick, who, if, if you're not familiar with the story, he did more than just fi- found a, a holiday that uh, we use for you know, making green beer and having parades and all of those kinds of things, right? Like, uh, Patrick was, he was actually sold into slavery. He was from Scotland originally, sold into slavery in Ireland. <clears throat> and for six years, uh, while a slave, kind of dedicated his life to prayer, eventually kind of received a vision that enabled him to escape back to, the instructions from the vision enabled him to escape back to Scotland, but returned later as a missionary to Ireland, where he he preached the gospel. And as legend has it, he used the shamrock as an example of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, to kind of explain this idea for people, because it's, it's such a complex idea. It's It's really hard to wrap your head around. And so he was trying to make it simple, easy. But as you can see, uh, even that is problematic. This idea that something as simple as a clover, as as a shamrock, could explain something as complex as the Trinity. Well, we are continuing a series that we started last week that we're calling Fuzzy Math. And in this series, we are talking about this idea, this distinctly Christian idea of God, in which we believe that God is one, but that when we say God is one, what we mean is God is three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, living in loving relationship. And this is, this is distinct. This is something that, as followers of Jesus, is part of what it means This is part of our faith, part of our creed. God is one, but God is three. And there are many who with us would say, yes, God is one. But when we say, but God is one and God is three, they go, "Um, no. That's why over the years, Christians have been accused of being polytheists, people who believe in more than one God. Because people say, "Well, well, you say that God is Father, Son, and Spirit. You say there are three gods. We say, yes, we do, but they're all one God. They say, that doesn't make any sense. And we say, yes, we know, but it's true. This is what we believe. So uh, get your questions ready. We're going to have a time of Q&A at the end. And, and this, is a, this is a challenging topic. And uh, as you can see from the video, I'm, I'm pretty sure there are, are, there's not much of a chance I'm going to get out of talking about this without committing some form of heresy. I'm grateful that we don't burn heretics at the stake anymore, so hopefully I'll get out of here alive. But um, get your questions ready. We'll have some time at the end uh, that we'll have a mic around, so if you, if you want to, you can stick up your hand and ask a question, or we have a, a fancy texting number on the back of your bulletin. You can always text a question if you prefer to do it anonymously or just not ask a question. <clears throat> so this, this idea of Trinity, this, is actually, this isn't something that... Um, is explicitly stated in Scripture. There's nowhere in the Bible where any of the writers say, so, God is one, but God is three. So nothing quite that overt. However, it is all through the thing. A couple of examples. If if you start in Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible, uh, Genesis means origins, it's it's the book of origins that we share with uh, the our, our Jewish brothers and sisters, they would look at Genesis as scripture as well. Um, and in the very beginning, 
we read an account of creation. It's in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. And the key in this is the word our. That there's a, there's a, a pronoun used here that's a plural pronoun for God. That God as one says, let us make human beings in our image. So is God one or is God plural? And the answer is yes. See how easy that is? Um, and then as we move along, we get to uh, Genesis chapter 18 and the story of, of the man Abraham. Abraham is one of the patriarchs of the Christian faith, also someone um, who is a patriarch of, of um, Judaism and Islam. These are the three Abrahamic religions, right? We all look back to Abraham. We're going to look, in a couple of weeks, we're going to look at some of the stories of Abraham and, and the way that he shapes the way that we understand who God is and what it looks like to follow God. Um, but here, there's a distinctly Trinitarian way in which we see God revealed in Abraham. In, in, in Genesis, or to Abraham, in Genesis chapter 18, we read about a story where God actually appears to Abraham. And it opens this way. The Lord appeared to Abraham next, or near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. So God appears, the one God appears to Abraham, and he appears as what? Three people. Interesting. Interesting. And again, in the Old Testament, in in the Jewish scriptures, they would not say God is three. They would say God is one. But even throughout the Hebrew scriptures, we see God show up in a plurality. The one God show up in three persons. Then, of course, when you get to the New Testament, it's even more explicit. So when Jesus is sending out his disciples into the world after his resurrection, as he's getting ready to ascend, he says this in Matthew chapter 28, the first biography of of, uh, Jesus. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Spirit, right there. And then later, when Paul, one of the early church leaders, is writing his his second letter to the Corinthian church, He says, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And I could go on, but I won't. Again and again and again, especially when we get to the New Testament, all over the place, you see this reference to God. The one God in three persons. This is core to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Because in saying, I am a follower of Jesus, I'm saying, Jesus as the one who reveals God to me, as God, as, as one member of the Trinity. And this is understandably really difficult. And so because of that, for years we've tried to use analogies to make it simple. So you heard some of them in the, the little clip that we played, right? There's, there's the analogy of the apple, where the apple is three parts, the skin, the whatever thing is after the meat. Did you see what? Meat? That sounds weird. Flesh? Flesh, thank you. Flesh, and then the core, right? So the apple's three parts, but one thing. And that, kind of. And then there's the egg, right? And then there's the egg is the shell and the yolk and the, the other thing. I'm not good with the middle thing. Whatever the middle thing is, I'm really not good with that. But the, the clear part. The white. There we go, right? I would have figured that eventually. Um, but, and that's, again, that's kind of true, but not quite, right? And, and then, of course, there, we, we heard the example of the water, the solid, the liquid, and the gas. And that kind of is helpful, but it, it doesn't 
quite get at it. My, most, my favorite one I saw most recently, uh, I don't know how many of you have kids, but maybe they have one of these things, right? And if you're like me, you, uh, you have been kind of, <laughs> you've been like the crotchety old guy who's like, I don't understand why kids have fidget spinners. I never had a fidget spinner. I just had like pencils, right? Um, and so, or like your quarter, right? That was our fidget spinner. Can you spin the quarter? Um, and so someone posted this on Facebook, and it, I really have nothing deep to say about it other than it's the first useful thing I've ever seen come out of fidget spinners. So, um, so ki- you know, if your kids have this, great. Just use it as an opportunity to teach them some heretical theology. But that actually might not be, that might not be heretical. I haven't, I haven't thought through it enough to figure out exactly whether or not it is. But we're going to move on because I'm just... We're just talking. Um, so, but yeah, so there's all sorts of analogies that we use to try and take this really complicated thing, this idea of Trinity, and to say, oh, look, it's, it's not that complicated. It, it's really simple. All you got to do is look at it this way. And as much as I appreciate those efforts, and I think I've even done them a couple of times, I think it's actually a disservice because the fact of the matter is this is remarkably complex. It's incredibly difficult. And so at some level, what we have to do is simply say, I can't exactly explain it, nor can I really understand it, but I choose to believe anyway. This is what is wrapped up. This is kind of the the part you see in the clip where St. Patrick just kind of loses it and goes, fine, it's blah, blah, and he just starts quoting the Athanasian Creed. That's kind of where this is. So in the Athanasian Creed, Creed, one of the things Athanasius, who was a church father um, centuries ago, said, we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. This is what we believe. And it's, it's challenging. It's kind of mind-blowing if you stop and think about it. And it might sound really esoteric, like... So what good, is it just kind of theorizing? What, what good is that? But, but one of the things that the Trinity does for us, that spending time reflecting on the reality of the Trinity, even though we can't wrap our minds around it, is it draws us back to a place of wonder and awe. It causes us to wonder. That's with an O, not wander. W-O-N-D-E-R. And I think this is a much-needed corrective for us sometimes. I know for me, it's really tempting to always want to take these really difficult theological things and break them down into bite-sized chunks. Like, so what's the takeaway? What do we do? And, and let me just say, I mean, that's part of one of our core values as a church. We always, we believe that for this, what we believe to be divorced from what we do, that isn't, there's, a, there's a disconnect there that isn't true to who Jesus is. Jesus who brings together, he's fully God and fully human. And so to be fully followers of Jesus, we're bringing together our real lives and our understanding of God in a way that actually lives itself out on Monday morning when you're going to work or Monday night when you come home and you're tired from work and you're having to deal with your spouse or your kids or your roommates or whatever. This stuff all matters. It's all practical. But at some level, we have to realize that we just, there are things beyond us 
And that's a good thing. To stop and go, I don't know that I can completely wrap my head around this, can be really good for us. It can draw us back into a right understanding of ourselves and our place in the universe. I remember um, a couple of years back in college, we took a trip to Trinidad. Trinidad is a, a small island right next to Tobago. If you've ever heard of steel, ever heard steel pans, they originated there, uh, or steel drums. I'm sorry, uh, they originated there. Um, and we spent a week down in Trinidad um, working with some people in that area. And one of the things we got to do is we had some we had some time off during the week. They took us to this gigantic rock that jutted out into the ocean. And they took us there at night. So it's kind of idyllic. You can kind of imagine, right? So it's, it's night. There's not a cloud in the sky. And we go out on this gigantic rock, like 15, 20 college students. And we're just like looking at endless stars. And all we can hear are the waves crashing against the rock. And there was just nothing to say. You're just in awe. And of course... Uh, as you know, if you've ever spent much time with college students, one in every five college students, it's a statistic, it's, you can just you can look up the studies, one in every five college students has a guitar on them at any given time. And so we're out on this rock, we're all in awe and wonder, and of course somebody breaks out a guitar and we just start singing. And it was the best worship service I think I've ever been a part of because we're already there. Like we're kind of already at the place of awe and wonder, and now someone just starts playing some music and we're like all in, right? Because, because wonder is good for us. It draws us to remember who we are and what we're a part of, that we're a part of something much bigger than ourselves that we can't always wrap our mind around, that we can't always simply break down into manageable bite-sized chunks. We are a small an important but a small part of an infinitely bigger thing. The Trinity draws us back to that. Brian Zond, in his book, uh, Beauty Will Save the World, talks about it this way. And it's, a, it's kind of a long quote, but I want to read it to you because I think it's a pretty good one. I think it's helpful. Zond writes this. What is distinct about Christianity is its sacred mysteries. If we abandon these sacred mysteries as superfluous to the goal of giving people something practical, we should not be surprised if eventually they abandon Christianity as superfluous to the pragmatic project of self-improvement. Instead of presenting Christianity as the latest gadget, we need to present it as an ancient cathedral. If we have no respect for the sacred mysteries of the faith and acquiesce to the American pressure to be practical, What's the Trinity got to do with me finding success in life? We become like the Soviets who turned Russian cathedrals into warehouses. Failing to recognize the worth of beauty independent from utilitarian function is symptomatic of an abject poverty of the soul. It's like saying that if we turn St. Peter's Basilica into a parking garage, we would improve it by making it practical. There's a word for this, and it's vandalism. We must not vandalize the faith in the name of pragmatism. I love that. That's, it's a thick quote, right? But, but what he's saying is, we lose something when the goal of life is that everything has to be utilitarian, that everything's about how do I use this to my own advantage. If all our faith is, 
is a tool that we use to make our lives what we want them to be, then no longer are we a part of something bigger. We're simply looking for strategies in which I am God calling the shots for my life and I'm looking for things to plug and play in a way that makes it work out. But when we allow ourselves to to stare at something beyond our comprehension and be in awe of it, we're reminded that we are a small but important part of something much bigger than we are. This is what the Trinity does. It reminds us of our place in a bigger story. Now, you might very well be sitting there going, just because something is confusing doesn't make it true. Like, it's great to say that something is confusing and so it should cause us to be in awe, but maybe it's just confusing and so we need something that's less confusing. And that's a fair point. But the more I think about the Trinity and the more I listen to people much smarter than me and read people much smarter than me, the more I see how well my understanding of the Trinity, my, my not understanding... This idea, this belief in the Trinity sets us up for, for the rest of like, experiencing life as a whole person well. I mean, think about it. The more we discover about the universe itself, the more we realize how fundamental relationships are to everything, to everything. Not just interpersonally, but at the subatomic level. So... Uh, Writer uh, Richard Rohr uh, wrote a book about the Trinity, and he writes this one piece that I love. He says, Isn't it telling, and more than interesting, that the basic building block of our entire physical universe is what we call the atom? And the atom is most simply understood as the orbiting structure of three particles, proton, electron, and neutron, in constant interplay with one another. This is one of those moments where, at least for me, and maybe not for you, but I read something like that and I'm like, whoa, right? Like, so what we're saying about the creator is that the creator is one that exists in three persons, an eternal loving relationship. And what we're saying, what scientists know about kind of the fundamental structure of the universe, the atom, is that it is a thing, an atom, that exists because of the relationship of three things. Protons, neutrons, and electrons. And I'm just like, huh, that's crazy and cool, and I'm not exactly sure how to wrap my head around that. But it's, it's not just atoms. I mean, everything in the universe is, is relational, exists in relationship with other things. And of course, if, when we get to humans, that, it's like that on steroids, right? The more, we know, the more we learn about how we function psychologically, the more we understand how essential relationships are to human flourishing, to being whole people. It's not that you need to be around people all the time. I get we have, we have introverts, we have extroverts, we have ambiverts. We have people all over the spectrum of what you need in terms of relational interaction, and that's great. But the fact of the matter is, even if you're the most introverted person ever, if you are isolated from relationship, you will die. You need more than food and water to, to flourish. You need relationship. It's, it's baked into us. 
And that doesn't make any sense if the creator of all things is an isolated, separate being who has no relationship, who simply creates because he kind of felt like it. But if the creator of all things eternally exists in relationship, Father, Son, and Spirit, then understanding that all of this exists in relationship makes sense. So that, even though I don't know that that explains it better, that lines up with an understanding of a God who lives in community. Secondly, I would say, if God does exist, it would make sense that we would not be able to wrap our heads around God. Right? Like, if we could simply explain God, but God was like us and just, I mean, if God was easy to explain, it would, God would kind of be like us but more powerful, right? It's like the Greek and Roman gods, like Zeus or, or Venus or, uh, you know, Mars or Apollo or, or Hermes or whatever, right? Like these, these gods were simply really super powerful humans, people that we kind of understood because that's how humans function, but they were just a lot stronger and more powerful than us. But if, if there is a God at the center of everything, then it makes sense that this God would be beyond our comprehension. That trying to explain this God would constantly run us up against a place where we're like, I don't know quite how to get at this. That this God would be beyond our ability to explain. But this is where I think the Trinity is so helpful. Because when we come to the Trinity, and particularly this this morning, we're talking about the Son. We're talking about Jesus. The Trinity is an invitation into a relationship with the God who is incomprehensible. Because a God who's simply incomprehensible, who's simply beyond our understanding, is actually a God who's, frankly, more likely to be fearful, like someone to be afraid of, than someone to be known. Right? Like if God is just big and powerful and beyond our ability to wrap our heads around, then we should maybe fear that God. We should definitely obey that God. But beyond that, I'm not sure what else we could do. But in the Trinity, and particularly in Jesus, we come to understand something more about what this incomprehensible God is like. The Trinity is actually God's invitation to know this incomprehensible being as we come to know him in the Son, in Jesus. We see this kind of play out as... um, in, in some of the letters we see through the New Testament, as they're trying to, as Paul in particular is trying to explain to these new followers of Jesus how it works out that Jesus is both human and divine. And one of my favorite places where we see this is in Paul's letter to the Philippians, in Philippians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, um, we'll have it up on the screen here. I want to read to us briefly from uh, Philippians chapter 2, 
beginning in verse 3. Uh, and if you don't have a Bible with you, one thing real quick. We do have some uh, extra Bibles out there on the countertop. We'd love to have you grab one of those and take it home as our gift to you. Um, but uh, again, we'll have it up here on the screen for you to follow along this morning. So Paul starts out in verse 3. He says, he's instructing them on how to live. He says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. So he starts out very pragmatic, right? This is very practical stuff. This is how you ought to treat other people. But then he does a deep dive and like, so why? Why should you do this? Is this because God is distant and other and angry and he demands it? And if you don't do it, you're going to get punished. And he's, he's incomprehensible, so his punishments are incomprehensible. It's going to be horrific. So you just do what God says. No, that's not his rationale. He says this. In fact, most commentators would say Paul breaks into song at this point, what we might call worship. Paul says, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus has. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In Jesus, we get the human face of the incomprehensible God. Jesus shows us the God who is so beyond us that no analogy we can come up can accurately describe what God is like, but who is so committed to us that he comes near so that we can know him. Jesus shows us the incomprehensible God come to be known, not understood, but to be known, to be in relationship. The God who exists in eternal, self-giving relationship inviting us into the dance, inviting us into the relationship that God himself enjoys, Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, if you've, um, if you've been here for any length of time, you probably know, uh, maybe painfully so, that I really like basketball. And so uh, the, it, the last couple of weeks, I was really kind of engaged in watching the NBA Finals, in fact, for my birthday, uh, my son bought me a little plaque that was very nice. Uh, I should have taken a picture of it and put it up there, but the plaque says, uh, we interrupt this marriage for basketball season. Um, I wasn't sure if that would be a great gift, but my wife laughed, so I think it went all right. Um, but but I, I'm, I'm really into it. I was not so much into the results. I'm a, I'm a LeBron fan, I'm a Cleveland Cavs fan, and they were beaten pretty handily by the Golden State Warriors. But we're not here to talk about that. Um, but one of the realities that the, that the NBA is dealing with now is the fact that we have Kevin Durant now on this team that was a historically good team, and now he's gone to one of the top two or three players in the league is now on this historically good team to make them even better, almost unbeatable. And there's a lot of people who aren't happy about that. They're mad at Kevin Durant for doing this. And I was listening to a podcast. One of the things I, I love about the campaign, apart from all the ways it helps people and the ways we build relationships, is that I get to listen to podcasts while I walk, and it's kind of fun. Um, boring for others, but 
fun for me. Um, one, of the, one of the girls who was on the campaign saw me listening to a podcast, and she said to her mom, she's like, oh, look, uh, Tim's listening to music. And I think Andrew was with them, and he's like, no, no, he's listening to podcasts. And she's like, oh, that's lame. And it, it is, but I like it. So anyway, I was listening to a, an NBA podcast, uh, and they were talk- this guy was talking about how everybody is hating on Kevin Durant. And he said, and I want to, too. I really want to hate Kevin Durant for what he did. But there was this one time that I went to this, this big thing where all these NBA players were there. And they're all hanging out. And most of them, even some really solid guys, you'd look at and you're like, that's a great guy. They were unapproachable. Walking around with their, their Beats headphones, listening to music, almost, almost a, an aura around them where you couldn't get near them. Everyone just avoided them. But then there was Kevin Durant. Kevin Durant constantly had dozens of children around him at all times. He was taking hundreds of pictures throughout the night, signing countless autographs. He just has this way about him that says, I want you to be with me. I want to know you. I want you to know me. And sure, he's Kevin Durant. He's a, a, you know, millions and millions of dollars, super famous. But there's a way he carries himself that invites people to know him. And this is, obviously, again, bad analogy, but I think a helpful way to understand what Jesus, as the, one of the persons of the Godhead, uh, one of the, the, the persons of the Trinity, he helps us know the incomprehensible God to understand that the one that we can't wrap our head around comes to us anyway. That in Jesus, the incomprehensible comes near. The distant comes close. God draws near to us in Jesus. And this is good news to all of us. Because some of us feel incredibly unworthy and unlovable and like we're, we're failures. Like we deserve nothing from anyone. Maybe it's because of, of past mistakes we've made. Maybe something really bad, like, like an, an affair that you had a couple of years ago. Maybe it was that horrible thing you said without thinking to your child or to your, your parent that changed your relationship forever and you wish you could get it back, but you can't. Or maybe it's just, for some reason, you have this sense of yourself that you're never enough, that you can't live up to anybody's expectations, and you constantly walk around feeling like you're just not worth it. In Jesus... The incomprehensible God says, oh yes, you are. God comes near. In Jesus, God is not intent on judging us or punishing us, but in knowing us. In Jesus, the incomprehensible God wants to be known by those of us who can't wrap our heads around him. This is good news for us, particularly those of us who feel as though we're not lovable, we're not worthy. In Jesus, God says, oh yes, you are. 
but it's also good news for those of us who are fine, thank you very much. We're, we see religion as, as a crutch, as, as something that may, might be for people who are really needy, but I'm good, I'm fine. In Jesus, we also see a trinity, a God beyond our comprehension, who if we think about long enough, will bring us to failing at words, unable to articulate anything that comes remotely close to expressing accurately what this God is like. In Jesus, we're shown a God who is bigger than we can imagine. And we're drawn to wonder and awe. There's a psalm, Psalm uh, 8. The psalm is a list of, of songs and poems that we find in the center of Scripture. And in Psalm 8, we read, the psalmist is in awe of nature. And he writes, when I look at the night sky and see the work of your fingers, he's talking to God, the moon and the stars you set in place, what are mere mortals that you should think about them? Human beings that you should care for them. This is, this is what wonder does, right? It puts us in our place and reminds us that while we are incredibly important, we are a tiny part of this giant thing that God is doing in the world. We're loved, but we're not the center of the universe. And that's good news for all of us. So as we go throughout this week, my hope, my, my prayer for us is that we could reflect on this really confusing, incomprehensible thing that we say that we believe, that God is one, but God is three. And that it would draw us to wonder and awe over the splendor of God, but that it would also draw us to gratitude, knowing that this incomprehensible God has come near in Jesus to say that you are loved, that God wants to know you and be known by you. So two things kind of as takeaways, and then I want to do some Q&A. Number one, I would invite you to consider what's something you can do this week to put yourself up in a place of wonder and awe. We don't have much space in our lives for awe, for wonder. Most of our lives is about getting to the next thing, being efficient, accomplishing. Taking time to sit in awe just doesn't feel very useful. How might you and I carve out time this week to, to be in awe? Maybe it's, um, maybe it's spending some time in nature. Again, the psalmist draws on nature as a way to kind of move to awe. Maybe it's art. It could be multiple mediums. It could be watching a film, looking at a painting, a quilt. My wife quilts, being, you know, looking at a quilt and some of the designs there. Uh, whatever, sculpture, something that draws you in. Maybe it's, <clears throat> excuse me, maybe it's silence. 
time, just a few moments where you can sit in silence. Or maybe it's spending some time in scripture, looking at the description of this incomprehensible God and spending some time meditating on it. It could be one, it could be a combination of some of those, but taking a few moments this week, maybe a few moments a day, to put yourself in a place of awe and wonder. And then secondly, um, I think, you know, it is Father's Day. By the way, happy Father's Day. Uh, Dads, grandfathers, and for those of you, even if you're not a biological father, if you're not someone who has a great relationship with your biological father, just as, uh, you know, Carmen mentioned earlier, we need men who are investing in our lives. And many of you, whether you're biological dads or not, have taken interest in investing in some of the young people in your life, men and women. We need that. Again and again, we are, we are, we are more whole people when our men and our women are not simply kind of assigning themselves to their biological families, but are saying, where are the places that I can invest myself? Who are the people who need a mentor, who need someone to come alongside them and put an arm around them? So whether you do that with your biological kids and or with others, we need you in our lives to take that role of dad. And we're grateful for you. But one of the interesting things we see in the Trinity as we're thinking about this role of, of parent, I think this works for mom and dad, is that we get a God who is both incomprehensible and close. And I think as we think about that spectrum as parents, there's a helpful paradigm there for us. Because I think we can, we can float on either way, on either kind of, into the, either pole on that spectrum, right? Some of us want to be the really close buddy-buddy parent, and some of us want to be the distant authoritative parent, like that's just, e- one of those is easier. And what is amazing about this picture of God that we see in Father, Son, and Spirit is that there is both the one who is beyond and the one who comes near. And I think for us as parents, it's a helpful challenge to think through what does it look like to be both the one who is beyond my child, not not kind of just doing everything they want, but seeing the world in a way they can't see it, making decisions for them that sets them up well, even when they don't like it, helping create safe spaces and boundaries, and yet also knowing that part of what our kids need is to know us, to not just know that dad or mom is out there making a paycheck and paying the bills. You need to do that. But that there's also a relationship that goes beyond simply the function of I'm the dad, I'm the mom, I'm taking care of you. And so maybe for us on on Father's Day, dads, but for either parent throughout the week to reflect a little bit on how might God be inviting us, challenging us to think through our parenting in a way that we're thinking about both being, creating safe spaces creating an environment for our child that's good for them even when they don't like it. And if you're like me, maybe you like to be the buddy-buddy one, and sometimes it's challenging to step back from that and say, I need to make decisions for my child that's, that are good for them but uncomfortable for me. Where might you need to be challenged in that this week? That could be a good conversation to have with your spouse or if you're a single parent, to have with a good friend. Or maybe you're really good at that. You're really good at the providing for your family, really good at you know, paying the bills, um, making decisions for the household, 
but you just don't quite know how to relate to them. Maybe, maybe ask a friend, process with your spouse, think about how this picture of the incomprehensible that comes near might invite us to come near our kids, to open up ourselves in a way that allows our kids to know us and be known. I think it can be a helpful, it's a helpful challenge for us wherever we're at on that spectrum to think about parenthood through the lens of God.